Um, so, when we went to France, uh, we had quite an amazing trip. Uh, we spent three days in Paris. I'll tell you about that someday. We spent two days in Normandy. I'll tell you about that someday. That was probably the most significant part aspect of it. And then we spent a week with my brother in um, Limoges. If you have fine china, flip it over, look on the back. There's an 80% chance that you have china from the town that he works in. And um, so we went to church with them, to their little French church that he planted 11, 13 years ago, something like that. And uh, they didn't have a bass player, so they asked me to play bass. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And so I got up, and the way we do our music here is we put the name of the chord, like an A chord or a G chord or a C chord or you get it, D, whatever. And I'm thinking like, hey, I don't have to know French because I can just read the letter of the chord, play along, and it's all going to be really good. And I got there, and they handed me the music with the chord names on them, and it was Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do. Oui, oui. Je ne sais pas. So, I told the guy that was leading, Luke, who spoke really good English, I said, just turn so I can watch your fingers, because I know the, the chord that he's playing when he's playing it, but I told him, I said, when you screw up, I screw up, so just keep that in mind. Anyway, we had a great time with them. One of the things I did learn about France is that they right now are in a, uh, a severe drought that like they've never seen before on record ever in France. And so it affects a whole, the, the entire nation. And so it's, it's, you know, they've got farmers with cattle um, and they're really famous cows. Um, limousine, has anybody ever heard of limousine cattle before? Yeah, they've got those there. They've got uh, Herefords. I mean, it's just like, I'm going like, I thought we invented those cows here in the United States, but apparently we didn't. You know, and so anyway, um, the drought has really affected a lot of France, not just the farmers, not just the ranchers or the, the, the sheep guys. It has affected the entire nation. It was hotter this year than they could ever remember. And it's really have a, has had a devastating effect on the, on, on the French people. Um, I saw it because one of the things that I really like, and I think I told you this some time ago, that as a kid growing up, there was a fig tree in the area where we grew up and we would pick fresh figs off that fig tree. And they have fig trees all over France. And some of them are wild. And so I'm like, I'm really excited because I'm going like, yeah, we're going to get to have some figs. And so we're walking down by the river. My brother and I would take his dog for a walk every morning. The girls were still in bed. We would walk the dog. You know, it was probably about a two-mile walk. And on the river, all of a sudden, I saw a fig tree, and I'm going like, all right, let's get some figs. And we walked up there, and the figs were about this big around, and that's all they were was like that. I was really disappointed, and I said to my brother, what's the deal? He says, well, with the drought, the figs have kind of dried up. It's been a really bad, bad year for figs. And I'm like, man, that's really disappointing. Um, now, let me tie this in for you, because it kind of comes to this place where we listen to what's going on with Habakkuk. Habakkuk now is into this song. He wrote a song after all the things that have happened between him and God and having this conversation and looking at Judah and all the bad things that are going on in Judah. He's got this thing going on, and he's going like, man, God's doing some stuff, and I don't understand it, and yet what I'm going to do is I'm going to write this song to praise God. Let me give you the last part of the song. It's going to be verses... Uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Here's what he said. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the Lord, in God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. So I get the whole idea about there not being figs. But what I didn't realize, and my brother did help me understand, is that when a fig tree produces the fruit, here's the fig 
right next to it is a blossom. And Habakkuk says, listen, uh, there's no figs and there's no blossom. That means there's nothing coming. And so he gives us this idea, this picture. He's painting this picture for us that when the fig tree produces fruit, there should be the blossom right next to it. And he says, it's not happening. Not only are there no figs on this tree, but there are no blossoms, blossoms either. So what I want you to do is be able to feel the weight of what he's trying to communicate here today. And what he's really saying is, today stinks and tomorrow doesn't look any better. Life really sucks right now and it's horrible. But the thing that we as North Americans want, people in the church and people outside of the church, we were always looking for this silver bullet, this quick fix to get everything taken care of so that we can get out of what's going on right now. We don't like being in bad places. We don't like being in bad situations. We get very agitated. It's when we have discomfort in our lives, we want to eliminate that discomfort as quickly as we can. We want to get out of it as quickly as we can. And Habakkuk's painting this picture really bleak picture that not only is today going to be really difficult and the situation isn't going to look any better tomorrow or next week. Anytime soon, nothing's good is going to happen. It is just going to be really bad for a long time. And, and, and we look at that and we're like, we got to do something about that. Here's the thing I really love about the Bible. And you're going to go like, well, duh. But the Bible is honest. It doesn't paint a picture that's not true. There are people who will take the Bible and they are going to use the Bible to tell a lie, to tell an untruth, to make things twisted a little bit. So it sounds different than what it really says. But the Bible itself is absolutely true in all that it says to us. And so it paints a picture of reality for us, of a broken and fallen world that we live in, and we are broken and fallen people. And sometimes we look at things like today, and we think things are really dark, and I'm not talking about outside with the clouds. What I'm talking about is you think, if you think about the political picture that we have to endure these days, things are really dark. And if you look through today, what you're going to see tomorrow isn't any better. And there's nothing that's going to fix this thing or solve it overnight. It's not going to be solved with any real quickness. Oh, by the way, this whole thing on climate change, if you believe in the Bible, which you probably do because you're sitting here this morning, climate change has always been happening. It's nothing new. I mean, if you don't like what's happening today with the weather, wait. Tomorrow it'll change. It'll probably snow. Right? So climate is always changing. And it's nothing new. But we have to, we have to drum up this stuff because we don't know what else to do. We're, we want to be in control of all this stuff. Now let's go back and look at Habakkuk's response because here's what's going on with Habakkuk, if you remember correctly. In, in chapter 1, he's got this huge complaint against to God, against Judah, because Judah has been in this whole process of worshiping idols. We dealt one week with worshiping idols, that, that each of us have this great propensity of having idols in our own lives. And those idols can be really good things. Those idols can be your wife or your husband. They could be your kids. It could be your house. It could be your car. Anything that's really good can become an idol in your life when it's placed in the wrong position. And we talked about that. And I asked you to go home and slay some idols, to knock them off their pedestal. I don't know if you did it or not, but uh, that's where we kind of went. And so we went through that. And that's Habakkuk's complaint against God is that Judah has been worshiping idols and they've been doing all this stuff against God. And then in chapter 2, God comes back to Habakkuk and he says, listen, I'm going to do something about Judah and I'm going to bring my discipline. We talked about how God's discipline is totally different than his wrath because the Bible tells us that God only disciplines those whom he loves. Does God love you? Then he's going to spank your fanny because he loves you. If you're not in relationship with Jesus, 
if you don't have that connection with Jesus, then what you could experience would be God's wrath. And I'm going to tell you right now, you do not want God's wrath. That's why we have Jesus. He's the wrath bearer. He bore God's wrath meant for us. He bore it on himself, but we have to step into relationship with him in order for, he, for us to know the extent of that. Okay, so that's that part of it. So that's what's going on. We've got this thing where Habakkuk's complaining to God. God says, I'm going to bring it on. Habakkuk's going like, oh, no, you can't do this. The, the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, they're really more wicked than Judah. How can you use these kind of people? And then God says, you just don't know, my son. You just don't know, which is kind of like us because we really don't know. We think we know, but all we know is what's happening right now. You don't know what's happening in kids' church right now. They've duct taped them all to the wall. <laughs> That's why you can't hear them right now. So let's go back and pick up chapter 3 with verse 17 again. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock, flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herds in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will, take, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on my high place to the choir master with stringed instruments. Do you remember, like over the last couple weeks, I told you that this was a song that Habakkuk wrote. These verses in chapter 3 are a song. And now he's literally singing it with other people. They're singing this song to God. And, and it's, it's their response to all that God has, has taught them and told them in chapters 1 and chapters 2. This is all a response to what God is doing. And, and so we're going to walk through this little bit of this, what's left of this book. And I think God has powerfully brought his work in this book to reveal it to our lives so we have a snapshot of what it means to walk with Jesus. That it's not always easy. That there are some difficult times. And what we're going to get a, a glimpse of today is what a mature Christ follower looks like. Now some people think that maturity in Christ is an easy thing, but I would contend it's not easy. Walking in maturity is not an easy task for a Christ follower, because there's a lot of things going on, and, and it's unbelievably confusing, and the waters can get muddied on what it looks like to be a Christ-following person who is maturing in their relationship with Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack for you some of those things and what I mean, because most of us just want, want our relationship with God to be a really simplistic answer to all that's going on in life, a simplistic answer to what it means to be mature in Christ. So I'm going to give you some popular thought processes that come from, I'm not going to pick on Wyoming, I'm going to pick on the South a little bit. I'm going to give you some thought processes that come from the Bible Belt in the South. So here's some things that they think, and there's only a couple of them. There's lots, but I'm just only going to share a few with you this morning. Here's what they think about maturity in Christ. What it means to be mature in Christ is that you know the Word of God. Is that true? Absolutely that's true. Is it false? Yes, it's also false. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. Let me help you see what, I'm, what I mean. Now, um, some of you, if, when, you take, when we take a look at the Bible, you understand scriptures are pointing to someone. This is the Sunday school answer. Who's the someone? A little bit louder. See, you all knew that one. Very good. It is Jesus. The Bible, everything points to who Christ is. Right from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. It's, it, Jesus is the one who reconciles us in relationship to God the Father. That's the whole process right there. But then there's the other part of this whole thing where some people think that Scripture just terminates on itself. We just have the Bible because it has these pithy little sayings that make me look really smart, and so I've memorized a bunch of things in the Bible that I can share with other people, but it really doesn't play any role in my life whatsoever. If that's you, you are uh, 
in an exercise of futility. Because that's not what the Bible is meant to be. Now, maybe some of you are thinking like, Pastor Ken, I don't think you really know what you're talking about. Well, let me take you to Scripture because, and show you what Jesus said. Because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. Here's what he says to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So here he has the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, these are the elite in Israel. They are the spiritual know-it-alls. They've studied scripture. They know it better than anybody else. They try to maintain the, the, the law, the 613 um, Levitical laws that have been given out for them, and they try to live their life according to the law, and so they know the Bible. But what Jesus is saying to them, he, he's, he says, the scripture is talking about me. It's all in reference to me. Now, Jesus isn't pointing to them and say, hey, you need to read the gospel of Matthew because you'll learn all about me. Do you know why he's not saying that? Because Matthew hasn't written that, Bible, that book yet. So he's saying, when he talks about scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, and I hope you hear me every time I say it. The only way to truly understand the New Testament is to understand the Old Testament. We can't throw the Old Testament out and say it doesn't apply. We're in Habakkuk, and it applies to a lot of things we're going through in our lives. And so to get a good picture of who Jesus is, you need to study some time in the Old Testament. Don't be afraid of it. It's not going to bite you. If you can't pronounce one of their names, just say Bob or Mary. Okay? Don't beat yourself up. Because if you don't speak fluent Hebrew, you're not going to say it right anyway. So who cares? Read the Old Testament. Immerse yourself into it. Find out who Jesus is. Because then when you do that, you'll understand the New Testament. Because if you take a look at the New Testament, and it, or the Old Testament, it talks about the temple. Do you know who he's talking about there? Jesus. When it talks about David and Goliath, that story, who's it talking about? That was weak. Jesus. When it talks, when we talk, or, or when the Old Testament talks about uh, Melchizedek, the great high priest, who's it talking about? You guys are getting there, but you're a little bit slow. Some of you need some more coffee, I think. Or you need a little sugar thing to pick you up and get you going. So, when Jesus says that the scripture testifies about me, he says, he, he's saying, search the scriptures because you think you know that you have eternal life through them, but the truth is, they bear witness about me, and you don't even recognize that, and you should be coming to me to find out what life is about. So let me give you a translation off of that, what I just said. So if you're sola scriptura, that means solely on scripture, and if you think the whole point of this is to know the Bible, then you're practicing in futility. But if you are sola scriptura, in that you understand that the scripture points you to Jesus Christ and furthers your relationship with Jesus, then you've got a shot at spiritual maturity. So does the Bible make a man, woman, mature in Christ? Yes, it can. But does it always? No, not always. There are some of you sitting in here who have read the Bible a lot. And, and, and you're like, I keep reading this over and over again, and it doesn't seem to make any difference in my life. I mean, let's just do a little uh, straw poll here. How many of you, put your hand up, how many of you have ever read the book of James? Put your hand up. All right, great. Because you know what the book of James says? It says, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. Anybody master that yet? Well, of course. <laughs> Not surprised. I, sh I, I mean, why did... I should have had your picture up here. And if you... I mean, if you need any, any other wisdom, just ask Jenny. She's got it all. Believe me. So... So, everyone in this room knows people who know the Bible. 
I mean, I know a lot. We, who, let, me, let me rephrase it this way. You know people who know the Bible, but you would never leave your kids with them. Okay? You know people who know the Bible really well, but you know how they use the Bible? They use the Bible as a weapon. Because what they want to do is they want to take it and they want to beat you up with it. Those people don't know anything about grace. They've never truly experienced the grace of God. They don't understand mercy. They don't know what it means to live in harmony with God. They don't know, know, they don't know what it looks like to worship God, to love God. Because if they did, they would be following what the scripture says, that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the next greatest thing is to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just do that. Let's just do that one thing. Okay? So, we can learn from the Bible. We can grow deeply in love with God, but that because you read the Bible doesn't mean that you're maturing in Christ. Maturity in Christ is more than just knowing the Bible. It's implementing it into your life. It's making application to your life. It's asking God, help me to be this kind of man or woman in the Bible. I'll give you one more from the Bible Belt, and then I'll point us back to Habakkuk, and we'll talk about this. So the second one, very popular thing from the Bible Belt, is people like to pretend that Christian maturity is behavioral modification. Now, that, that's a really great buzzword with a lot of people. People like to talk about behavioral, behavioral modification. They like people to know about, you know, that you can change your behavior. You can change your behavior. You absolutely, with willpower, can change the way you behave. But there's a problem with that. When you do it with willpower, you, you, you have a greater propensity of going back to your default person and living your life like that default person. You're not living as a mature person in Christ because when you, when the, when you have uh, behavioral modification brought on by Jesus, the biblical word we have for that is called life transformation. If we were to use a theological term, it would be conversion. It would mean that you were going this way, and now you've run face in, head on, right into Jesus, and because of what Jesus has done in your life, now you do a 180, and you're walking this way. And the problem with going this way is you are now going upstream. It's not easy. It's difficult. You are now fighting culture. You're fighting your own desires. You're fighting against a whole, whole bunch of different things that you have to deal with in life because you're going against what we would naturally want to do. And that's the difference between behavioral modification and biblical transformation. So, I want to just bring this to your attention out of Galatians because... Paul talked about that a little bit. He says, uh, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose at all. So you see, what, what Paul is saying is, is that if it were possible for us to change our lives by living according to the law of God that he laid out for us, then we wouldn't have needed Jesus. We wouldn't have to have Christ Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But the fact that Jesus did have to die, it shows us that nobody can fulfill the law perfectly except Jesus. And, and because of that, we have our righteousness through Christ, our, uh, our behavioral modification comes because of what Christ has done. He is at work in our lives. He is transforming us. He was changing us from glory to glory. We become a different person. We look different than we did last week. We look different than we did last year. My question to you is, how has Jesus transformed your life? Last week, I, I, I asked you to have a conversation with your uh, significant other, your spouse, your wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, your good friend, whoever it is that you hang around with that knows you well, and, and talk about 
And the question simply was, how has Jesus changed me? How is my life different because of my relationship with Jesus? And those, those are tough conversations. And, and what I said to you was, don't tell them how Jesus has changed you. What I said, what I asked you to do was have them tell you how you've been changed. How have you been transformed? What's your behavioral modification look like because of Jesus? Because if, if it's something that you've done, then you've just thrown yourself kind of under the bus because you're going to go right back to the behavior that you've always had. It's a default set thing in your life. So true, true spiritual maturity is knowing the word. Yes and no. It's more understanding how the word fits into my life. A Christian maturity is having your behavior modified. Yes, if it's through Jesus Christ, he transformed your life. No, if it's done through your own willpower. And so uh, now I want to take us back to the text in Habakkuk. And I think you're going to get a picture of maturity as we look at Habakkuk and what's going on in his life. Um, so a couple of questions that we're going to ask on the front end now. And you have to answer them for yourself. Nobody else can answer them for you. Um, are we immature but maturing? Nobody's arrived yet. I'll let you know that. You know when you have arrived, when you go to bed one night and you wake up and you're in glory. There's your maturity in Christ because now <laughs> you're full-blown on with Jesus. Okay? So we're in the process. The, uh, the, the Bible calls that sanctification. Continually working on what God's calling me to work on. So, or are you just an immature believer? You've not really grown. You've not really had anything take place in your life. And so you, you, you have this thing going on in your life that is just not making you grow. There are two things in particular that I want us to look at through Habakkuk as we understand these two questions. And, and you'll have to hopefully find an answer for these at the end. So let's go back to Habakkuk 3. We're reading this three times today. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the yields, fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the Lord, in God of my salvation. Here's the first real sign of maturity in Christ. And we go back to Habakkuk 1 and parts of Habakkuk 2. What we see is Habakkuk doing his own thing. He has a goal in mind. What's the goal he has in mind when we first open up this book and we start looking at it? He wants justice to be done to Judah. He's so frustrated that justice isn't being done that he complains to God and that he wants justice done. And then when God answers his prayer and says, I'm going to execute justice in Judah, then Habakkuk's complaint turns from God do justice to God exercising that justice and discipline against Judah. So he, he wants it, but he doesn't want it the way God's laying it out for him. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk is wanting to utilize and use God for some other goal. He's complaining to God because he wants God to function and operate the way he thinks God should do it. Not the way God does it. And the, the mature man or woman in Christ doesn't treat God like Aladdin with the, the lamp. Going to rub it and see if I can get whatever I can get from God. Because that's ulterior motives behind it. So the end goal wasn't God, but rather what God could bring. Now that's not sinful if it's regarding salvation. But anything other than salvation, then it becomes a sinful desire of our heart that we want to use God to give something to us that we want, regardless of what we believe in God, regardless of who God is, regardless of what God wants to do. If that's you, you put yourself in an unbelievably dangerous situation. And I'll tell you why. Because 
The only joy in the universe that cannot be taken from you is the joy that you have in God. See, that's the whole, whole thing behind this, is that God is the foundation of the deepest joy. God is the pursuit of his joy. And, and that's the mark of spiritual maturity, is that we have the joy of God that's been established in our lives, in this relationship with Jesus that we've gone deep with. And the problem that we have as people in North America mainly, and, and I think around the world, is that we want God, but only if he will do something for me. So it's like, I'll take God if he'll help me with my marriage. I will take God and I will love God if he'll help me with my finances. Yeah, I'll love God and, and ask him to be a part of my life if he'll help me with those satanic kids that he gave me. Yeah, I'll take God if he'll rectify my situation at work, if he'll make my business better, if he'll make my boss disappear. Uh, yeah, I'll love God. But the problem is, is when God doesn't live up to the promises we've asked him to live up to, we get disappointed and we get mad at God because we feel like he's betrayed us. And so the end goal wasn't God, but it was rather what God could bring. Now listen, here, here's the, the problem with that. No matter how much you think you can do this thing on your own power, the only joy in the universe that cannot be taken from you is your joy in Christ. Every other joy can be taken from you. No matter how much you lock it down, no matter how much you defend it, no matter how much you protect it, it's like trying to scoop oil out of water. You just can't get it. Now, when tragedy strikes, and believe me, you are going to know tragedy in your life. When your health, when you lose your health, or when you lose a loved one, when the bank account dries up, when you get fired from your job, when, you are business, when your business tanks, when you're rejected by the person you love the most, when all that you have built your worth on and all you have stocked your joy in is stripped away from you, then you've got a lot of trouble because your very identity then is lost. So if your greatest joy is your spouse, what happens when they die or they get hurt or they're weak and they can't do the things that made you feel like you've got your deepest joy coming from them? Let me tell you a story about my, my brother just older than me. Uh, Dwight, I call him D.W. D.W., um, his wife left him. She was, I'm not going to say a whole lot about that. I'm just going to say that she was crazy. Okay, that's enough said. You, you fill in the blanks on the rest of it. Uh, if you don't believe me, she's living in a nudist colony in Oregon right now. I've got to go back for counseling. I can't get that image out of my head. Ooh. So, my brother found out that this, this girl that we knew when we were growing up, she was actually like one of our family members. She was like best friends with my brother, Carol. She lived like 30 miles outside of Yakima. And then he found out that she had a breast cancer, a double mastectomy. And then when they were doing the double mastectomy, she had a stroke. After she somewhat recovered from her stroke, because she hasn't completely recovered from it, then she had to have a five-bypass heart operation. And then after she recovered from that, she went in for a checkup. They found cancer on, one of, on her kidney, and they had to remove her kidney. And just recently, she had another stroke. When she first was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she had a double mastectomy, she came home, and she told her husband, I have breast cancer. And he said, well, I'm really sorry about that, but I didn't sign up for that. And he packed his stuff up and he left her. Do you know why he left her? Because he was looking for Carol to be his greatest joy giver. And when all of a sudden she's got this really hard road to hoe in front of her, this breast cancer, she's going to have a heart attack, she's going to have a heart bypass, she's going to have cancer on her kidney, she's going to have a stroke, and then she's going to have another stroke, and, and, 
and she's got this whole thing, and now she's looking at life by herself because this guy said, you don't bring joy to my life anymore. Matter of fact, I don't think I want to be around you because you're going to suck the joy out of my life. And my brother Dwight married her. Yeah, it's awesome. You see them together, and you go like, whoa. I asked him one time, I said, here's my concern. Because my brother has had uh, a stent put, he was like on, on the verge of a major cardiac arrest too. And he was in the hospital with a heart thing. So I said to him, I go, here's my concern. Who drives to who to the hospital when you both have a heart attack? <laughs> you both need that little thing that, you know, when you fall down, it sends off a message and the ambulance just comes and gets you no matter what. So, you've got this whole thing, this desperate thing going on because you've got this, your life is wrecked because the person you counted on to give you joy, your deepest joy, is gone. That can come in the, in the place of your children. What happens when something happens to one of them? And, and the thought of that for some of you is just too much to bear because I believe that it, it, it's going something not good is potentially going to happen to you. Remember last week we said all it takes is one phone call for your life to be changed. One phone call. My kids in California, that, you know, Lorinda's there. Uh, she came to take over. I, I just got to say, I love Leela, my daughter. I love all my kids, just so you know that. But um, all of my kids have a, a pain tolerance that's probably normal. Leela has an abnormal pain tolerance. It's about this deep. So she's like, Mom, you got to come now because this baby's going to happen. Are you having any contractions? No. Well, what's the matter? I'm just sick of being pregnant. Well, I have to work. But can't you just leave? No, I can't. I've got responsibilities. Well, tell him just to bug off then. She's such a sissy. Oh, my goodness. So Lorinda's out there helping her. A couple of years ago, those kids, those Cali kids, two years ago, um, they go to a really great church in Susanville. And um, their pastor, Pastor Bob, he's bald like me, and so Priscilla thinks he's awesome. Well, you know, I can understand why. Um, and so Pastor Bob had his son and daughter-in-law who was also a pastor, moving to Susanville. They already have one guy on staff. They were bringing his son and daughter-in-law to help out with the growth and the development of the church. It's a, it's a fairly large church, six to 800 people. And they've got a really great ministry going on at the little community college. In the, uh, it's just awesome. And so um, Cody and Leela got to know Trevor and Anna because they came in for a few visits and they have two little kids a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so what Cody and Leela decided they were going to do with a bunch of their other friends is they helped Trevor and Anna move into their new house in Susanville. And then Leela and Cody said, we've cooked this meal. We want you to come over and spend the evening with us. We're going to feed you. That way you'll have full belly, and then you can go home, and then tomorrow you can start at work at putting your house together. And they're going, this is awesome. And Cody and Leela were so excited to have friends their own age, and they were just connecting really well with them. And then on Saturday, Trevor and Anna were putting things together in the house, and Trevor says, oh, I got to get a screwdriver. We need a screwdriver. It's out in the garage. I'll be right back. He went out into the garage, and Anna's in the house working away, and, and you know, the little kids are playing around, and Trevor's gone, and he's gone, and he's gone. She's gone like, I wonder what got him distracted. I wonder if one of the neighbors came over and he's still in the garage. She walked out into the garage and there's Trevor laying on the floor. She's a nurse and she went and took his pulse and he was dead. 30 years old. 30 years old. He had a brain aneurysm they didn't know about and it went through and he was gone just like that. So here's the, the, where everything goes. You've got this widow now with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And if her greatest joy is her husband, how does she rebuild her life? And once again, I don't want to make things too narrow because without Christ, she can rebuild it. It's just that it will be rickety. She will be nervous the rest of her life that her joy might be stolen from her again. 
And yet, if you build your life on Christ, if you trust in Christ, if, if he is your greatest joy, then the joy cannot be taken from you. Your greatest joy serves as a firm foundation that can be rebuilt upon and trust can be reestablished. Why? Because God is sovereign over all. We look at, at, and we look at that and we feel that it's tragic. Did Trevor want to grow up with his kids, his daughter? Yes. Did he want to walk her down the aisle? Absolutely. Maybe even do her wedding? Yeah, he would love to do that. Did he want to grow old with her? I'm sure he did. But like that, life has changed. Do I want to grow old with, with my wife, with Lorinda? See how hot she is when she's 80? You know I do. I told my girls, here, I sent them a picture of Lorinda recently, and I said, here's your hot mama. Be thankful you can look like her one day. And they both said, yeah, we are very thankful. Thanks, Dad. Um, but in the face of Jesus, his glory, does all of that fade away? Yes, it does. It doesn't look as important once you're full on in the presence of Jesus Christ. All those things will fade away. Let me just tell you about Anna. I've I, I got to finish this story for you. Don't you hate it when a preacher tells you a story and then kind of leaves you hanging? So I'm, I'm going to finish tied up nice bow for you. Anna lived in that house for the next year with her in-laws in their town. She was from upstate New York. She lived there for a whole year with her three-year-old and one-year-old. They turned four and two while she was there. And then after a year, she sold their home and she went back to where her parents lived. And she has rebuilt her life because her greatest joy was not Trevor, it was Jesus. As it's just one of those things that's sad, but it is also awesome. What I think we've missed out on, because when Jesus is not our greatest joy, we don't view loss correctly. We don't view suffering correctly. Because when you take a look at Paul, he, he had a look about Jesus that's totally different than the way we do. G, Paul's kind of like, since Jesus is my greatest treasure, everything, whether it's good or difficult, that's what gets me close to my treasure. I, I'll rejoice in that. So remember when we covered this, this whole thing about the thorn in his flesh a few weeks ago? What was he doing? He was rejoicing in that difficulty. And now think about how often that doesn't happen with us. We want out of this thing. What we do is when we've got a difficulty that we just don't like, it makes us feel uncomfortable, it's, it's not nice, it's not pleasant, what do we do? We gather up a bunch of our friends and we say, come and pray with me. Come and pray with me that this thing will just go away. I can't stand it. It's got to go away. And then we go, somebody bring the oil. You know that weird smelling oil that we have? Bring that and pour it over me and we'll pray that it goes away. Now, I'm all in favor of that, but sometimes I think that what Jesus has for us in that moment of difficulty, in that moment of suffering, is he's saying, no, what you're doing is you're going that way. I'm going to turn you around. I'm going to bring you up closer to me. Don't you want more of Jesus? Don't you want to know Jesus like Paul? Here's what Paul did. Here's what Paul happened with him. He, he says this, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. So he says, when I've got money, I praise Jesus' name. When I'm broke, I praise his name. When I preach the gospel and everyone responds and comes to Christ, I praise his name. When I preach the gospel and they hate it and they try to kill me, I praise his name. I got on a ship and made it safe to port, I praise his name. When I got shipwrecked in the open sea twice, I praised his name. Listen to this. One time after he was shipwrecked in the open sea, he finally crawled ashore on this island and, and he got up and they made a little fire and he got up in the evening and he started to preach and a snake bit him. And he said, I will praise his name. Have you ever read that story, by the way? If anybody has a chance to say this one phrase, it's Paul. Come on, man. Because he's preaching the word. He's doing it for Jesus. And do you not think Jesus has control over that snake? He certainly does. And he gets up to prepare the, to uh, proclaim the gospel. And he gets bit by a snake. And he's like, 
I'll praise Jesus' name. I'm like, ow, seriously, Jesus? Come on now. But you've got Paul rejoicing in that stuff. And here's the bottom line. I don't rejoice in that stuff. Do you? When you have those really hard days, when you have those really hard circumstances, when you're feeling not very good, when, you're, when you've got bad things going on around you, do you find a place to rejoice? Probably the reason we don't is because Christ isn't our treasure. You see, when people get cancer, they rejoice in the cancer because they draw, they're drawn closer to their treasure called Jesus. You will see people with financial hardship rejoice in Jesus Christ. The reason they do it is because Christ is their treasure. Now let me be very clear. I'm not talking about some. I, I don't want us to put on that fake thing. I don't want you to walk into church. I don't want you to huddle up in your life group and put a mask on and go look. Yeah, everything's just groovy. Me and Jesus, we're best friends. Don't do that. The Bible's called us to be real. He wants us to walk in, in that. And so the first mark of maturity is that our joy is set fully in Christ. He is our treasure. Now we're going to look at that very last verse, and here's the second mark of maturity. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's feet. He makes me tread on high places. Here's, here's the problem that we have with life and in Christian maturity. And, and the thing that kind of keeps us from growing up in Jesus is that we have placed our confidence in ourselves. We've bought the lie that it's all about me. I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm the ruler of my own kingdom. I'm the mature one here, and it's all about me. When in fact, that kind of thing is what's going to keep you immature and keep you from walking with Christ. And so another reason a lot of us lack immaturity is that we just are way too confident in ourselves. And for those of you who God deeply loves, and God loves all of us deeply, there are people that he doesn't love deeply. Do you know why? Because they're not his children. By the way, you should love your children more than you love your neighbor's kids. You should love your neighbor's kids, but you need to send them home. You keep yours at home and you show love to him. That's what God does because you're his child. He loves you more deeply than he loves those who are not his children. That just makes sense. And so that's who he is. And because he loves you deeply, you know what he's going to do? He is going to reveal to you where your confidence lies. In other words, if your confidence not, is in yourself and not in him, he has a way of bringing that to the surface and knocking that confidence out from underneath you so that you have to come back and you have to rely upon him and find your confidence only in Jesus Christ. And that's where we go with all this. Uh, I'm just going to really kind of cut this down to the chase because for us today, we have to come to the place where we have a sense in our mind that when we run into difficulties in life, we have to say to God, I cannot carry this. I need you to provide for me. I need you to work in these circumstances so that I see your joy and I have my confidence in you. And I want to place me closer to you so I get more of you in my life so that I know you in a deeper way, so that you are all that I care about. Now, it doesn't mean that we forget about everything else in life because God's called us to take care of those things around us. He's given us this ability to be stewards. Did you know you're supposed to be a steward of your family? Did you know you're supposed to be a steward of the relationships he's given to you? Did you know you're supposed to be a steward of your home, of your finances? You're supposed to be a steward of your kids? You're supposed to be a steward of the church? But all of that stuff comes under the umbrella of God being ruler of your life first. Your confidence is in Him so that you can be a steward here. That's what God's calling us to do. So Habakkuk has gone from this man who says, God, you need to do this for me, and you need to do this to Judah, and you need to, you need to do the things I'm calling you to do. That's who he was, and he was used, trying to use God to get to him to do the things he wanted him to do. He's gone from that man who would, who would say that stuff, and, and he would say, surely you're not going to use these wicked people to do all this stuff. He's gone from being that man. He says, 
if you, God, in your omnipotence, in your omniscience, know all things, then you will be the strength I need to walk through this season and into high ground. The real big question this morning is, What difficult thing are you going through right now? We all, we all have difficult stuff we're facing. Uh, I, I've often said that you're either at the beginning of a difficult stage of your life or you're in the middle of a difficult stage in your life or you're one dumb, stupid move from getting into difficult stuff in your life. And we all have them. And sometimes those moments are this big and sometimes they're years long. And we struggle. So what do you need God to do? Remember we talked about this right at the beginning of the question. Are you immature but maturing? Or are you still that immature person? Is your life, is your joy found in Jesus? Is he the source of all your joy, the foundation on which you build all those things? Or are you finding, trying to find joy from something or someone else? Number two, where's your confidence placed? Do you find your confidence solely in Christ or are you looking to yourself to be the man or woman? Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray this morning and ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and stir up in our hearts conviction of where you have us right now. Some of us are in some really dark, deep days and we need to know your presence, your manifest presence right now. There are some of us who have said, I can handle this, I can do this, this is my thing, I've got this, don't worry about it. And in reality, you've said, you can't do it because you're not God. And so I pray that we would find our joy and our confidence in you, that we'd be wary, that we'd be aware of, and we'd be weary of all the other trappings around us that are trying to move us from you. May we be stretched and may we move towards you today. May your name be great in our lives. May we make your name great among those who are around us because they see your greatness through us. We ask that you would work as you have always done, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.